Well, the man uh, who's going to bring the Word of God to us this morning is a man named Chris Barksdale. He's a pastor out at Christ Fellowship Church in Mobile, Alabama. Uh, pastor Steve Lawson is also a pastor there. He's been here before uh, to preach. Um, Christ, uh, Chris was born in Virginia and came to California uh, to get his bachelor's degree in counseling at the Master's College and after that went on to the Master's Seminary uh, for the Master's of Divinity program there. He's been married to his bride, Sarah, for six years. I messed up first service. And they have three kids, uh, two twins that are three years old and a daughter that's two. Um, and I told Chris first hour, you know, you can pace yourself on that. That's three kids in three years. Um, who would do such a thing? I have five kids. Um, the elders uh, have asked Chris to come and preach here this morning, and we're considering him for a missions uh, opportunity in the Hollywood area. And uh, So in a, a real sense, he's kind of our prelude to the missions conference next month. And Chris and I go, go way back. Uh, I've known him since uh, October, November uh, 2006. Uh, we long relationship together. But in that short period of time, though, I've really come to appreciate Chris's heart for the lost and just his willingness to sacrifice to bring the gospel. So I'd like to have us all give him a warm welcome as he comes up to give us the word this morning. Well, thank you um, for uh, your welcome and thank you for inviting um, us to be here. We are very excited. Um, I grew up in Virginia and went to school in New York and then out here in California. And uh, now I'm in Alabama, which is just very different. And i um, looking at coming back to California. So uh, that's where we are. If you will take your Bibles this morning and turn to the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John will be in chapter 4 this morning. John chapter 4. We'll read the text together and then pray and uh, we will get started. John chapter 4. Verses 1 through 18. I'll be reading from the uh, ESV version. John 4. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had, had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, weird as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty forever. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. 
And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband. For you've had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband, which you have said is true. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning. And God, I come on behalf of these dear people, and I thank you for bringing them here. Uh, We pray that your spirit would move in our midst, that you would take the words of God and apply them to our hearts. I, I pray that you would open our eyes, that we may behold wonderful things from your law, that God, you would incline our heart to your testimonies, that you would unite our hearts to fear your name, and God, that you would then satisfy us this morning. Satisfy us with your loving kindness, with your greatness, and may you, God, send us out today on a mission to seek and to save that which is lost, God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I said, I grew up in Virginia. Uh, My mother and my stepfather spent most of their adult life uh, working in a factory. Uh, That factory was called Owens Brockway Glass, and they built and made uh, glass bottles. In that factory, my mother worked um, in the inspection area, inspecting the bottles as as they would flow by, making sure they were up to par. My stepfather, though, worked in the end of it. It was called the hot end, and there's a reason for that. Uh, He worked up in the area where they actually made the glass. They would take uh, pieces of uh, salt. They would take salt. They would take pieces of old glass, other chemicals and particles, and pour it into this massive kind of bowl. It would become and would look like about about lava. It was heated to 3,500 degrees. That's why they called it the hot end. Um, And as he was up there, they would produce, out of that massive bowl, would produce and come out the bottom, would would come in rapid fire succession, would come this fire that would come down. From a distance, it looked like fireballs just shooting out the bottom. And as it would come down, it would hit and it would go into a mold, would be solidified, and lo and behold, there is your, your bottle. They would produce about 532 bottles a minute. That's what they did. Now, the interesting thing about that factory is that that is exactly how our hearts are. You see, our hearts, John Calvin, uh, 16th century reformer, said this. He said, our hearts, uh, the human heart is a factory of idols, he calls it. And he said, every one of us is, from his mother's womb, an expert in inventing idols. You see, even now... Your very heart is producing and manufacturing these idols to worship, to give your life to. The interesting thing about these idols is as they take their form, they take the form, as it were, of a brick, and we begin to build this wall around our lives of these bricks, these idols. These are our gods, our saviors as they were, our sin. They are there to keep us safe from perceived threats and to bring us joy, or so we hope. And that's what the unbeliever does. They build this wall up, it encloses them, and they do so thinking it will save them or make them safe at least from perceived threats and bring them that joy. For the unbeliever, uh, they think they're safe. If you don't know Jesus this morning, you think you're safe in the wall that you've built. And the actuality is, is that you have built a wall that's not safe. Uh, you You are under the wrath of God, and that is not a safe place to be. And you think that all the things you gather in life, all the things you give your life to, that those things will bring joy, bring happiness. In actuality, they may for a moment, but misery does await you. Misery does await you. Let me tell you that even from personal experience. Misery awaits you uh, in those idols as you pursue them. Because all your false idols, all your gods, all your saviors, your functional saviors will fail you. They will fail you. I promise you. They will fail you. 
Um, if you know Christ this morning, the thing is, is that God has broke down that wall, right? He's broken down the wall of your life, all the idols that you built up and smashed them as it were. And he has, he's broken them down. But as a believer, even us, we tend to go and pick the bricks up, right? Build the wall back up again with these gods that God has delivered us from. This mass production of idols is really all part of a divine design. We have been created to worship. Do you know that? Do you know that every person in this world is religious? They all are. Now, they may not go to a church building and things of that nature, but they are worshipers. They are religious. They have been created that way in their hearts. We know this by personal experience. Okay? We long for something greater than what we are and what we have. Okay? If you ever have gone to the Grand Canyon... Or anywhere like that. If you go stand at the bottom of the Grand Canyon, you don't walk down there and look at your shoes and go, wow, those, man, I guess I got a good deal on those shoes. You know, you start looking at them and some of you ladies may do that. But, you know, as you get down there, you don't look at your shoes, do you? What do you do? You stand at the bottom and you begin to look around. You go, oh, my word. This is what? Amazing. This is, this is amazing. Why do you do that? Why does everyone do that? Because they've been created for something greater than themselves. Something greater than who they are and what they have. So every man produces this, these idols. Augustine, or Augustine, who was a 4th century theologian, said, speaking of God, said, God, you, you made us for yourself. And our hearts, he says, are restless until they find their rest in you. That restlessness takes the form of idolatry, the Bible calls it. It's, it's producing and bringing into our life anything that can substitute the way of who God is. We all, in many ways, are like a souvenir shop uh, in London, right beneath, beneath uh, Big Ben. And we, we make the replicas, we make the image, we make the copy of the original, and we place it in our stores that we're, and we sell them because this is what we're looking for. And, but we just make, we're just making a copy, we're making an image of what is of the original. And that's what we do. And that little idol... Okay, you don't have the wooden ones in your home probably, but those little idols you have, they may be, they may be tangible, they may not be tangible, but you all have them and we all have them in our lives. We're all seeking to be delivered by some perceived need and to find joy. We're all doing that. Um, for some, let me give you some examples. Well, what does this look like? Okay, uh, let me give you some examples. For some, loneliness is the perceived problem in their life. That is the core issue of their life. They're lonely. So what do they do? They, they perceive a problem that they need a savior for. And so their savior becomes, in some facets, becomes something like sex. If I can have that, that'll, that'll deliver me from this lack of companionship or lack of lonely or loneliness factor. For some, the others is pain and heartache. Um, suffering and pain and heartache and there is their perceived problem that they need a savior for. So they, in turn, go to alcohol abuse, drug abuse, um, even suicide to find that peace to deliver them from the pain and turmoil do you know that even a person who commits suicide is seeking a savior a deliverer it's the same word they're seeking to deliver themselves and they think death will deliver them from the pain that they're experiencing if only i had death it'll all be over right we all do this we all have our own functional savior some it's it's more subtle some, it's uh, maybe disapproval is the perceived problem they need a savior for. So they turn to excelling in academics, excelling in sports, excelling in their work. And they pour their life into it to find significance or to find that joy, to find what they've been, just something they can do. Something they can find it in 
to seek the applause, right? To seek the approval, to seek the acceptance of others that they're, yes, they are a hard worker. Yes, they're a good person. Um, and they look for that. Even my three-year-old son, I have, as Tim said, I've got three children. Even my three-year-old son has his own little idol factory that goes on. It actually produces idol factory very similar every day. Uh, and it's called snacks. Um, my son is obsessed with snacks and, uh, that's what he wants in life. Um, I ask him this. I get him back from Awana. I don't know if you guys do Awana here or not, but I get him back from Awana. He's all excited. You know, I was like, how was Awana? What did you think? What did you learn? Who did you meet? You know, blah, blah, blah. He says, daddy, daddy, I got a snack. You know, that was like the greatest part of Awana was a snack. You know, I, I, I try to teach him how to ask for something. You know, son, what do you say when you need something? I try to teach him how to say please and not just give me, you know, which is the default answer. Uh, what do you say? He says, he says, well, daddy. Um, may I please have a snack? You know, it's like his illustration he wants to use. And my favorite one with my son is that he, um, with his sister, I get up in the morning and I asked him, I said, did you dream about daddy last night? You're just trying to build a relationship with my kids. Did you dream about daddy? And my daughter looks at me and goes, no, I dreamed of mommy. I'm like, oh, thank you. I appreciate that. And uh, my son goes, yes, I dreamed of you, daddy. I'm going, good. What'd you dream about, son? I dreamed that you gave me a snack. You know? <laughs> oh, man, they're a lot of fun. But, but listen, from a three-year-old to a 98-year-old, it doesn't matter. We all have what we perceive to be the things we need in life. Those saviors, those functional saviors to deliver us from what we have in life. That's what the Bible calls idolatry. And it's idolatry because what we're doing is we're seeking to substitute. We're seeking to substitute the real, true, living Savior and God with our own little living Saviors and Gods. Okay? We don't have the wooden, probably, idol in your house that you bow down to each night. But you have those in your life. You have those. Now, I wonder this morning, what do you worship? You're worshiper. You know that, right? Whether you know Jesus or not, you're worshiper. What do you worship? What do you give your life to? What do you seek to find that joy in? What is it that you are uh, seeking to deliver you from? What are your perceived needs you think that you have this morning? Well, in this gospel of John that we're looking at this morning, the gospel of John, the great thing about John is he told us why he wrote the book. He said in John 20, verse 31, he says, I have written these things so that you may believe three things. So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Savior, the true Savior, and that he is the Son of God. He is God himself. And that believing you may have what? Life. In his name. John's saying, look, I'm right. I want you to know three things in this book. I want you to know that Jesus is the true Savior above all your saviors. I want you to know that Jesus is the true God above all your gods in life. And I want you to know that he is the supreme treasure above all treasures, above all things you value in life. Jesus is superior to all of those things. He is what you have been created for, whether you recognize it or not. Well, this morning we run across a lady. We meet a woman here in this text. And she has created her own gods. She has her own functional saviors. She has built up the wall of her heart with them. In her life, it seems to be, as we read the text, it seems to be companionship. It seems to be sex. It seems to be something along those lines. As she is, we find out later, is shacking up with a man who's not even her husband. She's had five. Um, and now she's with someone else. But the story we read about, understand this, the story we read about is not so much about her, but about who? It's about Jesus, isn't it? Um, we get a glimpse of our Savior's heart and love for people, even of those who, have re- who are rejected by society, ones no one will speak to, ones that need a true Savior like you and I. This morning, I don't want you to think of this lady as someone you may meet one day, okay? I don't want you to think of this lady as someone you may run across one day walking on the streets. 
I want you to realize this morning that this lady, she's you. She's a person sitting next to you. You see, because we all have the same issues. We have the same heart that's producing all these idols. Hers may take on a different form and yours may take on a different form, but we're all just like this lady. So put yourself in her shoes. And so as we see this and what we find is that many times, again, like an ancient city, we've taken our little brick-sized gods and saviors and we've built a giant wall. And that wall's been built around. And Jesus this morning, is going, what he's going to do, what we're going to see by example for our own lives, what we're going to see is applicatory to our own lives is going to be Jesus, as it were, taking his battering ram of grace and just knocking, knocking, knocking on that wall until it all comes crumbling down. And that's what he's doing. That's what we see in this text. So if you're taking notes... And we're looking at this morning is three ways Jesus breaks down our wall of idols. Number one, I'll give you the outline up front and then we'll walk through it. Number one, he pursues your heart. He pursues your heart. That's verses one through eight. He reveals his value, verses 10 through 15, and he demonstrates true love in verses 16 through 19. Okay, let's begin by looking at the first eight verses. And we see here that he pursues our hearts We see in verse 1 that Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John. Um, We see Jesus has been in Judean countryside in the text by a river. And now he hears someone comes up to him. uh, Someone comes up to him and tells him about uh, these, these Pharisees. The fact that they're keeping close eye on Jesus. They're watching him closely. And they tell Jesus that these Pharisees are keeping a clicker. They got it going. They're watching how many times he's baptizing, as it were. They've looked at the Judean times, the box scores, and they see that Jesus is now surpassing John the Baptist on the baptism blocks. You know, And so that they're now focusing their energy off of John the Baptist and onto Jesus. And Jesus, for lack of um, avoiding um, conflict, leaves Judea. And he heads to Galilee. But look at verse 4. This is probably the most important verse in all of this passage. Now, you may read it initially and go, um, that doesn't look very important to me. Uh, Look at verse 4. It says he had to pass through Samaria. The Greek literally says it was necessary for he himself to pass through Samaria. He had to. Now, did he? Did he have to pass through Samaria? Well, the way it was set up then in the times of the uh, Palestine, there were three main territories. There was Galilee in the extreme north. There was Judea in the extreme south. And right dead center was the area called Samaria. If we were to compare that to where we are right now, Galilee would be something like Burbank. Judea would be something like downtown L.A. And Samaria would be something like Hollywood. Very similar. Um, And we see in this passage that Jesus had to go through. But why? Normally, Jews didn't go through. Do you know that? Normally, Jews went around Samaria Uh, They did that, though it took twice as long. They did it because they hated the Samaritans. And the Samaritans were fine with that. They hated them too. (laughs) They said, we'll go around just as well. Don't don't come to our country. We won't go to yours. Just stay away. So why did Jesus go through? We know the disciples hated this. The disciples didn't want to do it. Matter of fact, Luke 9 tells us that the disciples began to go through um, Samaria. They went to prepare the way for Jesus and to set up a place to stay, etc., etc. And as they go up there, the Samaritans say, we don't want you. Go away. We don't want you to be in our country. You remember what uh, the sons of thunder said? <laughs> um, they, told, they told Jesus, hey, Jesus, hey, just give us the word. Just give us the word. We'll take them out, right? We'll, we'll send down fire and we'll consume them all. We'll, we'll do it any way you want it. You know, medium, medium well, well done, extra crispy. You name it. I mean, we'll do it. We'll, we'll take care of them, Jesus, because this is not right. That was their thought. But that was the way all the Jews thought. Why was this hatred so strong? 
Well, history tells us that back in about 720 BC, the people of Israel were taken captive by the Assyrians. The Assyrians would take them out of the land, bring them back to their land and leave some of their people there, the Assyrians, but also leave a remnant of Jews. Those Jews did the unthinkable, the unpardonable sin to a fellow Jew. They began to marry these other Assyrians and became the race known as the Samaritans. When the Jews got brought back from, from uh, their, their captivity, they brought, brought back in Ezra and Nehemiah. They began to rebuild the what? The walls, right? And they began to rebuild the temple. Do you know what happened in that text? If you go back and read, the Samaritans came down to the city and said, hey, can we help you? We'll help you build the temple back. This is great. We're all back together. And the Jews said, uh-uh, no way, Jose. You, you go back. You go back to your country. We don't want you here. And they said, fine. So they picked up their toys and they went back and played their own place. And that's the way it happened. And, and yet in that time, during the, the 400 years of silence, you know what that is, between Malachi or Malachi, if you're Italian, you can say that, Malachi, and the Matthew, that, that time period of 400 years of silence, in between that time, the Jews were so upset because the Samaritans went back to their country. They built their own temple. They said, fine, we'll build our own. We'll worship our own God. Fine. The Jews got so upset at that that they went up on a campaign and they went and wiped out that temple, burnt it to the ground. They said, you're not going to have another temple. So you can just see the escalated conflict between these two groups of people. This is where we are in our text. Look at verse 5. It says, he came to a town of Samaria called Sikar. Okay. Now, Sikar is a, uh, a subsidiary of Samaria. It actually was given the town, the name was given by the Jews. They called it, get this, they called it the drunken town. That's what they called it. Um, they called it the town of liars. Um, that's what they called it. Two hours away was from the actual city. It was really, became known as what we would call today the red light district of Palestine was what it was. And not only did Jesus go through Samaria, he went through the roughest part of Samaria. He went to the most outcast, um, demoralized people um, in Samaria this used to be the happening place. It used to be the place that was hopping. It used to be the place that things were happening. It says in our text, it was where Jacob gave Joseph a family-owned business. Things were going well at the time. But now in Jesus' time, it's a place known as full of immorality, full of drunkenness. Uh, we begin to see our parallels, don't we, between our modern day here and Hollywood. Verse 6, Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour. Now, John is laboring. Do you notice this? To give us some details, isn't he? See, details that seem insignificant, that don't seem to matter much, but I assure you that they do. When, Jesus, when John says it was a sixth hour, he's telling us that it was high noon. It was the middle of the day. Um, Jesus here was, needed a drink of water, so he comes to this public drinking fountain, would be the idea about a hundred foot hole in the ground that water would collect after the rain. And that was where they got their water from. He had no bucket to draw with. He had no bottle to pour the water in. So he meets this lady and asks for her some water. This journey was hard on Jesus. It said he was tired. Uh, it was hard on him. It was all part of his mission. Jesus was going to the extreme ends of the earth, extreme ends of, of places no one wanted to go to reach the lost. Look at verse 7. And here we see our first character, the woman, came from Samaria to draw water. And Jesus said, give me a drink. This is a local woman. She's come to this public drinking fountain to get water. Now the fact, now understand this, the fact that it was the middle of the day, uh, the fact that it was Jacob's well tells us a couple things about this. First of all, Jacob's well was at least a mile away from where she was in, in her town. It was about a mile away. And so she would pass by at least four or five wells to get to where Jacob's well is. Why would she do that? Okay. 
She also went in the middle of the day. When we understand history, women in that time went to get water twice a day. You know what time they went? It's wise, actually. They go first thing in the morning when the sun's not too hot, and they go late in the afternoon, right before the sun goes down. That was the normal procedure. So why would this lady travel a whole extra mile out of the way? Why would she go in the middle of the day when no one's around? You know, later in the text, her lifestyle, right? No doubt, if you've uh, seen, like you like the movie, like the Nativity Story, if you've ever seen that, remember the part with Mary and Joseph, and they're going to get registered, and they're leaving the town, and all the people are looking at her and kind of frowning at her and kind of just outcast you know this ooh, she's she's pregnant outside of wedlock you know and and that was their mentality that was the way it's very true that's the way it was with the people there if you were involved in any kind of more and more relationship outside of marriage that was how they viewed you and that's no doubt how she would have been viewed she was an outcast Uh, she was surely shunned by other people Um, she didn't want to bump into anyone for fear of insult she had surely had many abusive threats insults hurled at her she was from a small town and that would have been the nature. Uh, she, would, she would rather walk the extra distance in the hottest time of the day than face the hostility uh, and rejection of other people. And she comes to this well hoping, the normal routine is, there'll be no one there. She can just get her water, go back to her tent with her man, and just kind of just live her life, right? And just not avoid conflict. She probably thought no one would be there, but you know, someone was there, wasn't he? <laughs> someone was sitting there. Someone was waiting for her to come. Jesus knew what he was doing. He, he had to pass through Samaria. Why? Because she was there. And he had drawn a circle around her name before eternity started. <laughs> and and she, she was part of his, what he was seeking. She'd already had enough from her fellow Samaritans. She probably thought Jesus as a Jew was going to uh, hurl insults at her. Call her a half-breed or whatever it may be. No doubt as we read the text, we find out that the, the disciples had gone downtown into this place where she was from to get food. And there wasn't, you know, a lot of options. It wasn't like 101, 134, 5, 405. It wasn't those options. It was one road that went straight down to town. So no doubt she passed by coming up as the disciples were going down, knowing their heart toward the Samaritans. No doubt she'd already faced that criticism. No doubt she had been hurled insults um, in that situation. So she comes to this well and she comes, sees the man and she comes despondently, just kind of lowers her bucket. You know, I just get some water. Get out of here, you know, to get some water, get out of here. Maybe he won't say anything. And yet we see Jesus do the unthinkable. He asks this lady for a drink of water. Uh, Now you think that's no big deal. But for a Jewish rabbi to talk to a Samaritan woman was a very big deal in that culture. A very big deal. Now Jesus opened the door for her. He's bridging the gap, as it were, to bring her the gospel to preach the good news of himself. J.C. Ryle said the following, the preacher in England in the 19th century, He said, it threw a bridge across the gulf, which lay between her and him. It led to the conversion of her soul. So Jesus is pursuing her. He's pursuing her heart. Um, Notice a couple things on this, okay? Application points. Number one, notice that Jesus is seeking her. She's not seeking him. Do you see that in the text? She's not seeking him. She's actually trying to avoid people. And yet Jesus puts himself right in the center, right in the middle for her to bump into We know that none is righteous, no, not one, Romans tells us, and no one seeks after God. You may have rolled out of bed this morning. You may have come to church this morning thinking, ah, maybe I'll skip today, you know, hit the snooze button a couple times. You're going, I usually sleep till 2 2 p.m. And you you may be doing that. You may have thought, I'm not coming today. And yet God brought you today. Maybe you're a visitor. I, I visited one time a church when I was 18. I didn't grow up in church, never walked into a church. 
walked in 18 years of age and, and, and it, it was a shocking factor. Okay. <laughs> As I walked in, I got saved. Let me tell you something. When I walked in that door that time, that was all part of divine design. I wasn't seeking God, but God was seeking me. And if he brought you today, he brought you today by divine design. He brought you today to hear from him in his word. See, if we know him this morning, we love not because we first loved him, right? We love because he first what? Loved us, right? Um, We are not smarter than people like this. We are not superior than this woman is who doesn't know Christ. Um, John 15 tells us that apart from him, we can do what? Nothing. You ever think about that? You can't tie your shoelaces. There's, 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 no, there's, no foot, there's no footnote there. There's nothing. He said, you can do nothing apart from me. We are totally dependent upon the grace of God. And if it wasn't for the grace of God, let me tell you, my dear friends, you would be in the same situation, if not worse. If not worse. But notice the second thing about this text. It tells us some application. Number two is that Jesus was on a mission. Jesus was on a mission. He had to go through Samaria. And as his children, we go through the same mission he brought us to. Luke 19.10 tells us that the Son of Man came to seek and to save who? The lost. That's why he came. He came for the sick. Uh, This is why Jesus took his disciples into the town. They didn't want to go, I'm sure. But he took them through to teach them that salvation, that Christianity was so much more than their little 12-person band that they had. Okay, It was so much greater than that. And they needed to see that. As a matter of fact, and look at your Bible, look at chapter 4, look at verse 35. Jesus tells them, he says, look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see the fields that are white for what? Harvest. Do you see what he's doing? He's bringing his disciples into an area that they never wanted to go, never would go by themselves, never would go without um, volunteering. But they go to this place. This place has been rejected. This place that people are lost, that people don't want to go to, don't want to... Minister in, and again, our parallels are pretty crazy here of Hollywood, right? Did you know that in Los Angeles County, all of Los Angeles County, the most unreached portion of Los Angeles County, it's not South Central, it's not any of those places, it's Hollywood. It's the largest unreached area in all of Los Angeles. And if you planted a church in every ethnic group that's there, 190 different people groups, (laughs) if you planted a church in all those 190 people groups, you would reach, get this, 98% of the world's ethnic groups, of people groups. 98%. I mean, foreign missions, it makes you rethink, doesn't it? <laughs> Just go right down the street, and there's all your foreign missions located right down there. Jesus will later say in John ten sixteen, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to me, he says. John 20, verse 21, as the Father has sent me, Jesus said, so I send you. Right before he ascended into heaven in Acts 1.8, he told them they will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and where? Samaria. (laughs) To the ends of the earth. Samaria. The place that's rejected. To disciples, Samaria meant the place that no one wanted to go to. Samaria meant the place that was uncomfortable. Samaria meant the place where there's a lot of lost people that didn't like you very much. That's what Samaria was to them. And when you truly begin to understand Jesus, when you truly begin to embrace him and you truly begin to grow in him, if you know Jesus this morning, as you grow in him, you begin to catch his heart. It has to happen. You see, if you don't see yourself as a missionary this morning, you think a missionary, well, that's like India, right? Or, or China or something like that. No, if you don't see yourself as a missionary this morning, even to where you are in your employment, in your neighborhood, in your family, and whatever else sphere of influence you have, 
If you don't see yourself as a missionary, it's not that you're necessarily disobedient to God. It's not necessarily that you're rebelling against God. You know what it is? You're just not like Jesus. You're just not like Jesus. Because when you get to know Jesus and you grow in a relationship with him, you become like him. That's the goal. And so if you're not like that, if that's not your mentality, if you don't see yourself as a missionary and you walk out of these doors, you're not like Jesus. Whenever someone met God in the Bible, they always were, were thrown in a mission, okay? Let me give you some examples, okay? Think about a couple. Abraham meets God. God says, go into a land that I will tell you. Just go. <laughs> you think of Moses, the burning bush. He comes to the burning bush. He sees God. He, God reveals himself. And God tells Moses to what? Go to Egypt. Go to Pharaoh. Tell him, let my people go. Go on a mission. Um, you see over and over again. You see Isaiah in the temple. He sees God and he... He says, well, I'm, I am a man of unclean lips. And he talks about who he is. He sees God in all of his glory, which is actually Jesus. The Gospels tell us that. It was actually Jesus and Isaiah. And, and he sees him and he says, I need to send somebody. And, and Isaiah says, what? I'll go. How about me, God? Why does he do that? Does he do it out of guilt? Does he do it out of like compulsion? No, he does it because he sees the glory of God and goes, what an amazing God. I've got to tell people about this. It's like staying in the Grand Canyon. I've got to tell people about this. We think of the New Testament, we think of Peter who uh, met Jesus. He was in his boat and wouldn't catch any fish, remember? And as he's there, Jesus says, throw your net on the other side. And throws his net on the other side. He does what? Gathers so many fish that his boat begins to sink. He throws it in another boat. That begins to sink. And Peter comes to Jesus. He falls down. He says what? Depart from me. I am a wicked man. Depart from me. He saw Jesus in all of his glory. You know what Jesus said to him? He said, no, you're not departing. He said, I'm going to make you fishers of men. That's what he said. He saw Jesus, he met, he saw his glory, and he said, okay, I'm going, I'll go, I'll be a fisher of men. Over and over and over again, we see this, we see the exact opposite in Jonah, right? Jonah's like, no, I don't want to go. God says, should I not love that great city? Was it because they were real moral people? No, no, Nineveh was not moral people. But God said, should I not love that great city? Why? Because there's so many lost in that city. Should I not love it? Let me give you, if I can, for, for a minute, some practical points on this. Um, this is just some practical points for you. What does it mean to be a missionary in your, in your context, where you are? Okay. I like acronyms, so I'll just use the acronym missions for a minute. Okay. Let me just give these to you. M, uh, make time, make time, get to know unbelievers. You say, Chris, I don't, I mean, I don't really know unbelievers. Well, you know what? Repent, repent, seriously. If you don't know unbelievers, that's a problem. God placed you here, saved you so that you would meet them and get to know them and reach out to them. Um, frequent the same stores, get out into your neighborhoods, walk around, invite neighbors over for a cookout or down south, you know, for a football game or a glass of sweet tea. That's what we did down there. Uh, you know, get involved. Your public schools, PTA clubs, sports teams, postage stamp club, I don't know, whatever you can get involved in that you like, just go get involved and get involved around other people. Look at another one. I instigate conversations. Instigate. Not too many people are going to come to you and say, fall at your feet and say, what must I do to be saved? You know, they're just not going to do that. If they do, let me know. That would be really neat to find out. Um, but we need to go out there. We need to instigate conversations. We need to ask questions about their lives. Get to know them. Be interested in them. Not a number. I got another notch in my belt of conversions. This is great. You know, Interested in them as a person. In their life. And listen to them. Number three, the S, stop fearing. Don't be afraid of unbelievers. They may look really different than you at times. It's okay. I looked really different when I came into the church for the first time. Um, it's okay. Remember that if it were not for the grace of God, that would be you. And that would be me. 
Uh, when people enter this building who don't know Christ, don't think, oh, so-and-so will talk to them. No, you talk to them. You reach out to them. You, hey, sit beside me. Bring them on in. Okay? Let's look at, a, at another one. Uh, S, show love and concern. Remember the Good Samaritan story. Care about the person holistically in their life. Meet their needs as much as possible as you can. Number five, I intercede for them. Pray for them. As an unbeliever, pray for them. You know, take a piece of paper, put it in your Bible, write down who these people are and start praying for them. Have your friends pray for them. Pray with the unbeliever themselves. That's one of the greatest opportunities I've ever had. It's just simply to, they, they think that's amazing. I mean, they think you could talk to God for them. They think that's incredible. And you begin to pray for them right in front of them. How can I pray for you? And you pray for them. It's, it opens incredible doors. Number six, the O, open up, open up. Uh, they're not looking for perfection or gen, or just for genuineness, okay? They're not looking for perfection. They're looking for you to have everything right in your life and everything going straight. They want to know that you're real. That's what they're looking for, reality. You're a real person, just like them, who's been saved by the grace of God, whose heart has been transformed. Number seven, the end, never give up. I remember a story of George Mueller. I read his biography, and he was, uh, his brother had uh, died. He'd re- tried to reach him his whole life, prayed for him, prayed for him. Two hours, two days, sorry, two years after his, after his death, George Mueller's death, his brother came to know Christ. He spent 35 years trying to reach out to him. Don't give up on that. And number eight, the S, it's not original with me, but I thought it was a good one, is uh, sleep like a Calvinist. I like that one. Sleep like a Calvinist. You know, God's in control. You give it all you got and then go, go to bed and rest easily. It's okay. God is in control. God saves. You just do your part and you trust him and just sleep. It's okay. Well, let's, let's move on to another point here in our text. Look at another point here. Let's look at, um, we see that Jesus first breaks down the wall of her heart by pursuing her heart. Number two, he reveals his value. Look at verse nine. We see that Jesus reveals his value. He says, the Samaritan woman and said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? She reacts to him with objection. It's typical of an unbeliever. I mean, reacts with objection. They don't, don't expect them all just to throw their arms open and just go, yes, I need to get saved. I mean, it doesn't usually happen. It takes a little time. Um, but he responds graciously to her questions, her objections. You see, in her mind, Jesus had done two social faux pas he had committed, okay, in her mind. One was for a man to ask for a woman something in that culture. You just didn't do that. Jewish rabbis taught that uh, you just didn't talk to another woman. A Jewish rabbi actually would not even talk to his own sister or his own wife in public. I don't know how that relationship stood, but they wouldn't even talk to him in public. They would just ignore them because you don't talk to a woman in public. There was actually a group, and I thought this was funny. There's actually a real group. They were called the bruised and bleeding Pharisees. Can you think of why that would be? They saw a woman, they put their head down, and they ran into walls. And that was called, they were called the bruised and bleeding. I kid you not, it is actually real. The bruised and bleeding Pharisees. They shut their eyes and ran into a wall so they wouldn't look at a woman. That may be, man, may be a good approach to to uh, fighting lust and that, you know, just close your eyes and look down. Don't do that when you're driving. Um, but uh, that may be a good, good approach. There was a second social faux pas that Jesus had committed in her eyes, and that was for a Jew to ask something from a Samaritan. That was unheard of. Rabbinic literature told us that they were not to eat with them, not talk to them, especially not ask anything from them. Look at verse 10. We again see Jesus breaking down this wall. He answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked, he would have given you living water. What an amazing phrase. Jesus says, you don't know who I am. You don't know who's standing right before your eyes. You don't see it. You don't see it. I am God's gift to you. That's what Jesus is saying. Now, normally in our life, ladies, if a guy walked up to you and said, I'm God's gift to you, you should run, you know, and... (laughs) 
call dad and say, come get him, you know, um, that's okay. But in Jesus case, this is an absolutely true statement. He is the gift of God to you. He is. He, he is the gospel. They use a Piper phrase. God is the gospel. He is the gospel. He is the good news. That's who Jesus is. Jesus says he would give her an undeserved gift of living water. Now, what did this lady think living water was? She thought living water was a stream that ran and flowed because the well was actually just a stagnant water. It was dirty. It kind of just collected rainwater. For her, living water was a great deal. I can get living water? This is a good deal. Um, the well was supplied by rainwater that where she would get the water from. It's kind of like L.A. tap water. You know, just that was kind of the, the kind of water. You don't drink that stuff. It's bad for you. You get a third eye or something. But, but she didn't get it. She just thought Jesus was offering an upgrade on her water supply. This is a great deal. Yeah, I'll take it. I'll take it. But throughout the Old Testament, what Jesus is saying is he's saying, I am the living water. Throughout the Old Testament, we read Isaiah 12, 3. With joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. Or Zechariah 13, verse 1. On that day, there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanliness. See what Jesus is offering her? He said, I'm offering you living water that will cleanse you and wash all the sin away. He's offering to cleanse her from her sin, to be the true and living Savior, what she is really created to seek for and search for, and she's substituted him for something else. But she doesn't get it. She doesn't see that the water she has drawn from this well in reality has just holes in the bottom, and all the water is just dripping right through onto her feet, and she doesn't see it. She doesn't feel it. She doesn't know. She thinks this is life here in this bucket of water. Life is in that tent where she came from with that man that she's with. That's where it's found. And Jesus says, I am the living water. This is so similar to a passage in the Old Testament, Jeremiah 2, verse verse 13. And Jesus says this, God says this. He says, my people have committed two evils, he says. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water. Sound familiar? And they have went out and hewn for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. What a picture. In a desert society, you don't go to a fountain of living water and go, uh, no, no thanks. I think I'll find it somewhere else. You don't do that. They, but the people reject the living water, what they've been created to satisfy themselves with. And they, in turn, go out into the desert. They dig a hole. They get a bucket, as it were, and they put it down, hope rainwater rains in. And when they pick it up to drink it, guess what? It's got a hole in the bottom. And they're just turning it up, and they're just trying to drink everything they can in this world. They're just sticking their head in the sand of the world. They're just trying to get all the moisture, all the sustenance they can get from that sand. And you're going, don't you get it? Don't you see that's not what you've been created for? It's not. Look at verse 11. The woman said, sir, you have nothing to draw with. (laughs) She's still critical of him. Where will you get that living water um, she mocks him, as it were. Verse 12, are you greater than the father of Jacob? I mean, she now thinks Jesus is on an ego trip, that he is, thinks he's greater and better than everything else. Are you greater than our father Jacob, who built this well a thousand years ago? What she doesn't get is that she's speaking to Abraham, I mean, to Jacob's God, isn't she? She's speaking to Jacob's, is he greater than Jacob? Oh, yeah, he's greater than Jacob. He's Jacob's creator. He was Jacob's God. What she doesn't know is killing her, right? What she doesn't know is that Jesus is standing right before her face. Look at verse 13. Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. 
How compassionate of Jesus. How loving of Jesus. Look, he tells her everything you're pursuing in this life, all those little gods, all those little idols, all those functional saviors that you're seeking to deliver yourself with, all those things he says you will drink from and they will not satisfy. Never. Never. He tells her that joy and salvation is not found in this water. It's found in him. And I can envision him sitting there pointing to this well and going, it's not here. It's not here. And it's not in that tent back over there where you came from with that man. That's not where life is found. It's not found here. It's found in the person staring you right in the face. Jesus is revealing the nature of sin to her. It always leaves you thirsty. It always leaves you wanting more. It's kind of like a Chinese you know, dinner. You, know, you eat Chinese food. It's great. Two hours later, you're starving. You know? <laughs> Typically, it's what happens. But that's the way it is. Look at verse 14. Whoever drinks of this water, I will give him, will, will never be thirsty forever. You see the, the, the comparison he's making between her and what she pursues and who he is? Your water will leave you thirsty. My water I'll give you will last forever, he says. It'll well up in you eternal life. I mean, is there anything else that you can pursue in this life that's going to last for eternity? No, you can't say that about anything or anyone in your life. She must realize that Jesus is offering to give her, verse 14, this water. It's a gift. It's a gift. He's going to give it to her. But she must receive it. It's a gift. She can't earn it. She can't work for it. Can't do anything for it. And this woman here really runs across something she never bargained for. (laughs) She came that day to just get water, you know, fill up the water in the well. And, and, and go back to her tent, go back to her lifestyle. This was unheard of for her. She was coming out to get some tap water out of the free drinking fountain in town. And she encounters the God-man, Jesus Christ, who offers her what she's always longed for, which has always been created for, is himself. Look at verse 15. She says, sir, give me this water. You think, well, that's great. That's good. She gets it, right? No. Look at the rest of the verse. So that will not be thirsty or have to come here to drink water, to draw water. You know what she's saying? She's saying, this will be great, Jesus. I can get this. I can have your, your salvation, your forgiveness, and I can still live in that tent with that guy. I don't even have to leave. I can just get my own well right there. This is terrific. I can go sin more now. I don't have to spend my time having to come and get water. And that's her mindset. She doesn't get it. She doesn't get it. The lady only thinks of buckets and streams. She was blinded to the all-satisfying Savior that stood right before her feet. But Jesus is not only pursuing your heart this morning. He is trying to reveal to you his value. He is supremely more valuable than all else in this world and all you think you need. If you know Jesus this morning, understanding that is how you fight sin. You know that? You can't fight sin with, no, don't do it. Stay away. No, no, no. I'm not going to do it. You can fight that all you want, my friends. That's legalism. It's never going to work. And you can try hard as you want to. The way to fight sin is to see who Jesus is, his value. He is supremely more valuable than that sin is. You go after sin because you think you need it. And Jesus is saying, no, I am what you need. That's how you fight sin. You fight the, the blazing fire. You fight that with a giant inferno of the passion and the glory of God. And you go, he's so much better than this. He's so much better. Listen, for this lady and for us, there's a fundamental problem, Okay. There's a fundamental problem she has to come face to face with. In order to receive this living water, in order to, to have this salvation, in order to have this free drinking water she's, he's offering her, he says something to her and he does something to her that may not seem very nice. Her walls of idols will begin to be slammed against. Jesus is slamming, slamming, slamming. She has to realize her bankruptcy. She has to realize her inability. She has to come to the fact that all of her idols, all of her life, she has to just throw away and go, I want you. So our third point, final point, here's what Jesus does. 
He demonstrates his love. He demonstrates his love. Listen, the most loving thing for Jesus to do here is to take, the, as he did in my life, is take the open sin wound in your life and just, and just press. And just press hard until you feel it. Until you see it. Until you realize what, you're, what is wrong with you. Until you realize the sin that's in your life, you will never turn to him. It's the most loving thing for him to do was to call her on her sin. That's the most loving thing for him to do. What would have been unloving for Jesus would have been to tell her all that he did and said, fine, you don't get it, I'm out of here, and leave. The loving thing to do was for him to say this. Look at verse 16. Go, call your husband, and come here. This blew her mind. This absolutely blew her mind. Um, she must have, Jesus must, must have helped her see the vanity of her sin. And here she is, no doubt stiffened up, you know, kind of a shot went through her back. And Whoa, what do you mean, go get my husband? How do you know about this? And she begins to um, feel the heat, not from the sun in the sky, but from the Son of God. And it begins to, she begins to get pale, begins to feel uneasy. And you, begin, you be, can begin to hear the walls begin to crumble. They're beginning to fall down. And the question will be, will she take this wall and will she build it back up again? Or will she let it all fall down? What will she do? What will she do? She caught a glimpse of herself. She saw herself for who she was. But I want you to notice something as John 1 tells us that Jesus is full of grace and truth. They're both in action here. Jesus told her to go. That was truth. Go. Go get your husband. Go see you for who, who you really are. But then notice what he says. He says, come back, doesn't he? Come back. There's the grace part. Don't just go and just go see yourself as sin and just be gone. He says, go, realize who you are, realize your sin, and then I want you to come back to me and I'll be standing here. That is Jesus' love to her. Look at verse 17. She says, I have no husband. She reacts. She, she covers it up. She says, I don't have a husband. Well, that, that's actually true, but she's, she's living with someone who's not even her husband is the, is the reality. This lady is very uncomfortable now. You know, she's ready to change the subject, no doubt. And, uh, and what we notice in the text, actually, in the language is that she begins to get quiet. Initially in the story, she was talking a lot. She was very verbal, and now she's very quiet. Just look, let's look at the numbers in verse 9, she's, she uses 11 words in the Greek. Verse 15, 13 words. Verse 11 and 12, she uses 42 words. In verse 17 here, guess what? Three words. That's it. What's happening? She's becoming convicted. She's beginning to see her sin. She's beginning to see for who she is in light of Jesus. And she's getting quiet in that. And she needs to see that. Verse 18, Jesus says, You've had five husbands, he tells her. What you've said is true. Jesus lays her heart open. He brings her face to face with her gods, with her false saviors. And she has most likely been divorced five times. And she has left husband. She has forgotten the whole marriage thing. So forget that. That hasn't worked. I'll just go shack up with some man who's not even my husband and go live with him. And that's where she is. Kent Hughes says her life was a miserable chain of unfulfilling relationships the pathetic fact that she had married five times indicates that she longed for fulfillment in her life and that she had sought it intensely. She did. That's what she was doing. Do you see her? Do you see yourself there? She's pursuing life in everything. You may not pursue it the way she did, but you pursue it in something. And we all have these gods. We all have these idols. Here she is. Okay? See the picture. Here she is, as it were. The walls have come crumbling down. And she stands around her life. This whole wall has fallen down. And she's there in her misery. She's there with her head hung. She realizes who she is. The mirror has been put before her face. But I want you to notice something else about the picture. She's not just there alone, is she? In the midst of the rubble, in the midst of the rock that has fallen down around her life, there's Jesus. Okay? He's standing there, arms open. 
And he's standing there and welcoming her into to him. He has told her to go and come back to me and I will receive you. I will receive you. All she had to do was come to him, admit her loss, count everything that she had as lost in order to gain Christ. Get rid of the rubble. That's all it is, is rubble in your life. That's all it is. It's just rubble. And to turn away from that and to give your life to Jesus. She had to come to the cross. She had to come to the foot of the cross. She had to realize that Jesus, later on in the Gospels, would, would, we'll, we'll find out, even as we read this morning, that he lived a life she couldn't live, right? She, he died the death she should have died. So that in, in 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made him a new no sin to be sin on our behalf so that he, speaking of Jesus, might become the righteousness of God in him. That's what it's all about. She must throw down the buckets of this world. She must get rid of the broken cistern. She must throw them away and she must come to Jesus this morning. Let me read you one final verse. And just listen to this as you hear the heart of God for you, the heart of God for those around you, the heart of God for those outside of these walls as you leave today. Listen to these words. May we catch this vision and may we be like this. Listen, Isaiah 55. Come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me. Eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear to me and come to me that your soul may live. And I will make with you, he says, an everlasting covenant with my steadfast, sure love. That's what he says this morning. He is the fountain of living water. He is what your life is all about. As a believer, if you know Christ this morning, come back to Jesus, the fountain of living water. Find, look at your sin, look at your life, look at the idols of your heart and begin to look at Jesus as the one who satisfies the one you've been created for. And if you don't know Jesus this morning, come to that realization for the first time. Look, let the walls come crumbling down in your life and let Jesus stand there and receive you if you will but acknowledge him and repent of your sin. Okay, after we're done here this, this evening, this afternoon, morning, whatever time it is now, 1220, um, the door is open over here, okay? And, uh, and you would come and pray with someone. If you'd like to speak to someone, I'll be here. Anyone else here who would love to talk with you. Thank you for the opportunity to be here with you this morning. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for these dear people. God, thank you for bringing them here. I thank you for planting them even in the city of Burbank. And I pray you would give them a heart, a heart that you have, Jesus, that they would come to know you, draw near to you, catch the vision of your heart to reach the lost in this very city. And God, may you lift up a planting of church in Hollywood, California, the largest unreached area in all of Hollywood, all of Los Angeles. And God, that we may be used by you to reach those who don't know you, those whose lives are very much like the Samaritan woman who is broken, who's given themselves to everything this world has to offer and has found nothing. God, for those here this morning who know you, may you take them and may you convict them. May you bring them face to face with their sin. May you show them all that they pursue in this life, all that their sin is, God, and that they would again come to you and realize your value, realize your worth. They would know your love for them this morning. God, that this morning, if they know you, they are just as loved today as they were yesterday. They're just as loved today as they're loved in the weeks to come. That status never changes, God. We are loved by you because of what your son did, not what we've done. So God, may you draw all men to yourself. May you use this church to be a beacon of light. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.